If you've bought property, you likely funded your purchase partly through a mortgage. If the property increases in value over time by more than the cost of the borrowing, you're better off. In the stock market, using debt is often called gearing. The new BetaShares Wealth Builder Funds, ASX ticker symbols G200 and GHHF, offer moderate gearing across Australian and global shares for investors who are comfortable with the higher risks associated with gearing their investments. You can discover how they work by visiting betashares.com.au. Please don't forget that gearing magnifies gains and losses, so read the relevant PDS and TMD on the website and consider if the fund is right for you. BetaShares Capital Limited is the issuer. This is a podcast by the RASC Group. It's for educational purposes only. So please do not make a financial, legal, investment or taxation decision based on solely what you hear in this show. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. We're on a mission to be Australia's most trusted property podcast. I'm Owen Rask, founder of the Rask Group. I'm Pete Wardgen, author and buyer's agent. I'm Amy Lenardi, and I am a buyer's agent. I'm Chris Bates, ex-financial planner and mortgage broker. Together, we'll take you through every step of your property journey. From first home buyer to decades of property investing. Welcome to the Australian Property Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're on a mission to become Australia's most trusted property podcast. And today, you're in the studio today with Chris Bates. I'm a mortgage broker. And today, I'm doing a future first home buyer episode with Melissa Vincent. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. So Melissa's part of the RAS team, and you'll see a lot of her in lots of different ways. We thought it'd be really interesting just to have a real chat today. Um, Most is really thinking about a future first home buyer and a lot of the challenges she's thinking through is is Mm -hmm. what a lot of potentially first home buyers are also thinking about. And so we're just going to have a conversation around really the logistics and the the reality of some of the things that first home buyers face in the country, not just in Sydney, but across the whole of Australia. So Melissa, maybe hit us up with the first question. Yeah, where do you want to take this conversation? Yeah, of course. So I suppose, like you said, I think it's probably some of the things that are on a lot of people's mind, especially at the moment, but just like a bit of context about my situation. I am from Perth, but I live in Sydney. So obviously the property market is really different in both of those states. So I think the mentality in different areas is probably a little bit different, but I'm kind of at a stage where I am looking to start my property journey in Sydney. So I'm just kind of curious, what are the first things that I should be thinking about when I'm starting off in that journey? So it's um you've kind of already hit the nail on the head a little bit. The first thing I'll ask as a broker, I mean, I was a financial advisor for a long time, so it's hard for me to so not want to know a lot of detail, right? <laughs> and and I think that the first question I'd be wanting to know for yourself is like, you know, so you grew up in Perth, you've moved to Sydney, like what is your sort of longer term plan, right? Now, this is not just for you, but it's for any first home buyer. Like a lot of people that are, you know, going to a certain city for work, but ultimately they want to move back to their hometown or maybe they want to go overseas, et cetera. So the first thing I think what you really want to do is start to map out your life. And, you know, start to think, well, I'm going to be in Sydney for three to five years, but I ultimately want to move back to Perth. That changes your decision. But if you said, look, you know, I'm actually, you know what? I really love Sydney. It's great for work prospects. I've got family here. I've got great friends. I love Perth, but I'm happy to fly back, you know, for Christmas to see our family, et cetera. And I'm I'm expecting to be here for, you know, a good five to 10 years. Then 
Now, that's the first thing to sort of think about. One of the things with a lot of first-time buyers as well is it's, it's really, especially when you're single, is that it's really hard, right? It's really hard to save. Yeah. And it's also the amount of deposit you need, but it's also hard in terms of the amount you can borrow, right? You've got one income that a bank will lend on. And the other thing why it's really hard, I find, is that your world can change pretty fast. Absolutely. Been married now for, I think it's four years. But if you go back sort of seven, eight years ago, I was single for a long time. And then all of a sudden I met my wife, right? And, you know, my world changed in the space of weeks, right? And I think that's one of the hard things with when you are first time buying your single is that what you really want to do is think through is ideally, can you make a stepping stone today that even if you do, I'm not saying everyone wants a partner, right? And everyone wants a family, but if you do get a partner, this is going to be something that's going to really grow your current savings, but also be something that's really going to potentially support that as if you have a partner, right? It's not just going to be something that suits you. So yeah, let's just talk about your situation though. Like, do you think you're going to stay in Sydney, you know, you're in uh, long term? What do you think? What's your plan? Look, I think I will. I love it here. Um, love Perth, but it's a little bit small for me in terms of job. My job is here, um, although most of the team's in Melbourne. But I just love the lifestyle in Sydney. I lived in London as well. So it's kind of like that in between, quite a big city, but still has an amazing lifestyle. So I personally don't think I'll move anywhere else. I mean, obviously something could change in an instant, but um, I think I'm here to stay. But you kind of said something that resonated with me. There's like a lot of people that I know do say, when I'm think when I talk about you know wanting to buy a property, they're like, well, why don't you wait until you're in a long term relationship so you have two incomes? But for me, I don't want to do that. Um, I don't want to rely on anyone, and you know that's something that's a variable that's you know could be who knows into the future. It could be tomorrow. It could be in like five years. It could be never. So that's something that I have in my mind of wanting to do it you know by myself somewhat. And absolutely. And I think that's a really noble thing to be doing, right? And I think you're saving and I think it's people working on their careers and, you know, and if you sit and just leave your money in the bank forever, well, not forever, but, you know, for years, you potentially could have been better if you made some investment decisions. I think with buying, you know, some shares in a little ETF and things like these are really easy things to do, you know, because you can easily sell them. I think when you're buying into the property market, it's a really big investment. It's a really lumpy investment and it's, with, with, I think, for people in your situation, you've got to really focus on making sure you get a quality asset because the time when you, let's say you do meet a partner and it's three or four years down the line and you say you wanted to get married or you wanted to have kids, whatever you bought today may not be facilitate that, right? So you might have to sell it. So one of the risks I see with first-time buyers is that their time frame of holding a property can be quite short. And so what really matters to them is that, you know, if they do have to hold it in a short time frame and they didn't want to sell it, they thought they were going to live in Sydney forever, but they decided to move back to Perth or they got a partner, et cetera, that because they took their time, they bought a quality asset. Yes, maybe they may not made that much money, but they didn't buy an asset that went down in value or they didn't. One of the things with that as well, so one, getting a quality asset, but it's also trying to limit your transaction costs because the more that your transaction costs are to buy it or sell it means that the more that property has to grow to start to make you money. So one of the things with first home buyers is to really understand what options you've got around sort of um, stamp duty and government exemptions, um, things like lenders, mortgage insurance is a cost. Um, so yeah, what's your sort of understanding of what the deposit you need? Have you have you thought about, you know, because this is one of the things, there's a bit of a myth there. So what, what do you believe actually do you need for a deposit? 
Yeah. So, I mean, in my head, I always had that you needed to have like, you know, 20% deposit. I think that's probably what my parents had. And I would be a bit transparent and like I am in a little bit of a privileged position that I have parents who can help me a little bit with the deposit. But I've had friends who have bought apartments with, you know, a 5% deposit. And something that Amy actually told me recently was about the lender's mortgage insurance, which is something that I, you know, wasn't sure about. I didn't really know anything about. So yeah, maybe you can talk me through some of the deposit options. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is, these are always changing, right? So, you know, stereotypical, you're right, like, you know, the 20% deposit is a beautiful number because you could go to pretty much any lender and you wouldn't pay um, something called lender's mortgage insurance. But 20% for a first-time buyer is an enormous amount. when you're So talking. much money. <laughs> and so, you know, that's just potentially not realistic, right? Absolutely. You know, stamp duty is one of the, the costs that you generally always need to pay, right? But sometimes when you're a first-time buyer, depending on the state you're in, this is a state-based tax. But first home buyers, they'll either have a limit to when you don't have to pay stamp duty. So in New South Wales, it's sort of around six fifty to eight hundred thousand. There's no stamp duty in New South Wales right now. There's actually a up to one point five million you don't have to pay stamp duty. But that might change, you know, with the the government in the next few weeks and by July. So you do really want to understand whatever, whatever state you're buying in. You want to understand what are the benefits around not paying stamp duty for first home buyers. But let's say you do need to pay stamp duty. You really probably in your mind need to think stamp duty is going to cost me around 5%, right? Which is a lot of money. It's probably a bit less than that. But once you pay a few legal fees and, and things like that, oh, an easy way to think about it, if I want to buy a property at 600000 I need $30,000 for stamp duty. It's sort of not yeah. too far off that. Okay. So, but you might not need to pay it depending on your state. But from a deposit from a bank point of view, it really depends on what also what government schemes are out there. So the government a couple of years ago really want to encourage first-home buyers into the market. And they brought out this thing called 5, 5% deposit home loan. And they've been like really quite successful. There are limits on, you know, the amount of income that you can have to achieve that. So about 120000 for a single. But that's definitely something for first-home buyers to consider because that policy the government set up is means you only need a 5% deposit to get access to this home loan and you don't pay any lender's mortgage insurance or anything. Wow. So that's, but you have to have a, you know, you have to be a citizen or they're changing it to PR actually now and income under 120. But let's say you can't get access to that scheme for some reason and you, so you really are thinking 5% stamp duty. The deposit you really want to probably aim for after that is a minimum of 10% deposit. And, and the reason I say that is if you haven't got a 10% deposit, then you, your mortgage insurance is really expensive. We generally wouldn't recommend clients to, to try to buy at a 95% loan because the mortgage insurance is huge. So, And I suppose at the moment with there's so much uncertainty with interest rates and that sort of thing, it could put you in sort of a, a vulnerable position to be able to service those kind of loans and insurances. Yes, it's a good point. So the, the higher LVR loans are actually a higher interest rates. That's the first thing. Secondly, the, if someone has gone for a higher LVR loan, it's most likely the reason they've done that is they had no other money. And so they couldn't stretch to a 90% loan um, for a 10% deposit. And so there are, a, the, and you pay a bigger mortgage insurance, which then adds, adds on top of your loan. So you're paying a higher interest rate, a big mortgage, you've got no buffers. And if there's any issue with the value of that property, you can very quickly get into something called negative equity, which is extremely stressful. And if something happened to you and you had to sell, you could potentially go under, right? And ruin your credit file for a long time. So yeah, you've got to be really careful going for these high LVR loans. Um, 
especially if you don't know what you're doing from an asset selection point of view. So let's say, so really a nice sweet spot really for someone to aim for is a 10% deposit. And then hopefully you don't have to pay stamp duty, but maybe you do. So it's like a 10 to, if you do have to pay stamp duty, it's about 15% times your purchase price, which is still a lot of money, right? Yeah. Did I, did I hear recently, this might just be New South Wales, but is there some sort of a, a new scheme or it might not even be new about apportioning your stamp duty over a, a certain amount of years or have I gotten that totally off base? No, you definitely did. So this is something that the Liberal pushed through late last year, which is a bit uh, cheeky of them, to be honest, because they knew <laughs> there was an election, you know, a few months down the line um, and they pushed it through and that meant that for first home buyers up to $1.5 million, they don't have to pay stamp duty, but they pay an annual land tax. Now, right. Liberals lost the election quite um, comfortably and lay, but right now in, in Parliament, I'm pretty sure it's in Parliament, like in the next week or two, they're going to debate it. And most likely it's going to get repealed and um, it won't exist for first-time buyers in New South Wales. And and it'll move to maybe up to about under 800000 in New South Wales. You won't have to pay stamp duty. But yeah, that's that's the, and that's the thing with first-time buyers. It's always changing. The government, the 5% deposit schemes didn't exist a few years ago. And you know, certain professions, I should throw that in here as well. Like, so if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you know, a chartered accountant, et cetera, you, don't, you can go for a 90% loan and not pay lenders mortgage insurance. Um, oh, wow. So if you're in those sort of professions, um, you know, it's a big advantage around lending. So that's something for you to explore. But yeah, the deposit is really hard. So I think if you in for a lot of first-time buyers, is definitely don't think 20% deposits. That's just not realistic. Yeah. But a 10% deposit and maybe maybe paying stamp duties is the number I'd be trying to aim for. Okay, that's good to know because it is definitely very daunting where you think, okay, I have to save all of this money or maybe liquidate other assets or, you know, whatever. That's, I mean, from my personal point of view, when I think about like a, you know, mortgage repayments, that seems like something that I could uh, be able to service, but getting that initial deposit is scary. Yeah. And it's really hard. It's like the hardest money to save. It's, you know, incomes are still growing. You know, we're still working on our careers. We still want to have fun and travel and, you know, live our lives, right? Because it's harder to do that as you get older. Um, totally. And so it, it is really hard, but I would say that, you know, it, once you do get there, um, then you can get your money to start growing and it does get easier and you've got equity, et cetera. So it's the first is absolutely the hardest. Not everyone's in the fortunate position to get help from their family, but, you know, generally speaking, if they are, I think if you go there and you really understand, I think when you ask your family the right way, I think and you really explain, look, I've saved this and this is the amount of money I need and these are the reasons why and this is the type of property I'm going to get and this is how I'm protected. Families really want to help. It's, you know, when you are grateful, I feel like if they can. So, you know, the other thing is around the, you know, sometimes there's a guarantor option, which is available for first-time buyers. Now, we do not that many of them. The reason why is that we, they're actually quite complex to make sure that they protect both parties. They, there's two people that, these are basically where the parents usually are the ones who help their kids buy their first property. And, you know, for the first home buyer, they actually don't need any money at all. They could actually purchase. Because what happens is, is the, the bank will secure that loan against not just the property that the first home buyer buys, but one of the properties the parents have got. So it might be their home, it might be an investment property they've got. And so if something went wrong with that loan, that the first home buyer, the bank would go, well, we'll pay out the first home buyer's loan, but then we'll also pay out the other loan that's secured against the parent's property. And if there's something issue there, it could actually fall on the parents. And so, yeah, that's another thing for people to, to sort of explore. 
the, the challenges that come here is, is if the changes to the parent situation, like they're thinking about selling, like they're thinking about downsizing, they're thinking about retiring, or they've only got one property and they need, or they want to do a renovation and they haven't got that much equity, or you've got three or four brothers and sisters wanting to do it at the same time, or it can get sticky. Yeah. So guarantor loans are, um, and also the type of property you're buying. If you're not, if it's not a great asset, which you probably shouldn't be buying anyway, like you've got to be really careful because you're not just risking your money. You're actually risking your parents' money and you don't want to be risking your relationship with your parents over poor property decision. And um, not say you would, but I think you've got to be really careful around guarantor loans. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, I suppose it leads me to like sort of an add-on to that question is once I have a deposit and I'm starting to look for properties, I I, I suppose it kind of goes into the borrowing capacity or borrowing in general. If I what sort of a property should I be looking for? What if I can't find anything that I really like, but I find something in a nice area, but it's like a little bit of a fixer upper? Is that something that I need to consider as part of my loan? How? What are the considerations there? And should you do it in the first place? Should you just get something that's good to go? Yeah. So um, probably the next thing, so you've got this deposit, but the first thing to really understand is how much money you can borrow, right? And and how much you can borrow isn't determined on how much money you've got. It depends on how much money you earn. And borrowing capacity right now is 2023. You know, we've got, you know, interest rates, you know, have gone up a lot um, and borrowing capacities have come down really tight. And so you can only borrow around five times your income. You know, 12 months ago, it was probably seven times your income. Okay. And so, you know, someone listening to this, you know, let's say you're on $80,000, right? Five times that's around 400,000. If you get bonuses or commissions or overtime or yeah, usually they're all countable, right? Depending on how long you've been with your job and things like that. So let's say you're on 80 and you get $20,000 of bonuses, then, you know, you're on 100, 100 times five is maybe 500,000. Yeah. And what if you're, um, you have like a side hustle that like I teach Pilates on the side, but you know, you're kind of a contractor. How does that work in terms of adding that into your loan? Yeah. So the thing with, um, all banks have different policies, right? So, and that, this is the thing that you've, you've got to be careful on is that if you go into a bank, you walk into a Commonwealth Bank or NAB or something like that, you're going to get their policies, right? Whereas if you go to a mortgage broker, um, any broker, there's 19,000 of them, right? They can go access to, and, and every broker is pretty much exactly the same, right? They've all got access to the same lenders, pretty much identical, right? And so they'll go, okay, well, one bank will say, well, it's a contract. How long you had that contract? Well, we need a minimum of 12 months. Another bank will say six months. You know, some bank will just do it on a, you know, a few payslips, et cetera. So things like that, it really depends on the bank that looks at your application. Some banks are a straight no, some banks will look at it. And so when you've got a really, you know, PAYG and you're on a certain salary, you know, pretty much everywhere will look at you. You know, probation is not really an issue. Like a lot of first-time buyers are switching jobs. A lot of they believe that got to get through the probation before I can buy. Well, that's generally not an issue. Starting a business, it's usually a couple of years till you can really borrow money, a couple of years of financials. And so, but yeah, five times your income. So let's say in this situation, you're on 100, you've got five times that's 500 is you can borrow and you're looking to borrow at 90% because you've got, you know, maybe $60,000, $70,000 of savings or something like that. Um, so you'd be looking at something maybe around sort of 550 or something in that scenario as your, as your maximum. Right. And what would be also really valuable as a first-time buyer at that point is to go, okay, well, what would be my repayments? Yes. You know, um, on that. Usually you're renting. Um, and what would be my repayments? Not just now, but what, what if interest rates went up? You know, what if they went up another 1% or half a percent? How much would my repayments go up? And so that would be, that's a, that's a real like a, before you start looking at a property, you want to stay in this like research 
figuring it out, the, the, the logistics and the numbers first, before you then go, well, what's the right property to buy for that budget? You want to sort of make sure you can afford it first. Totally. Being prepared for all kinds of futures, not just the one right now. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So with the repayments number, so let's say um, your repayments are on a $500,000 loan, I'll calculate it in front of me. At, it, let's say it's like $2,500 or $3,000 a month, right? A good, a good thing for first-time buyers is that, that that might think, oh, I'm already paying $1,800 a month now in rent, right? And my repayments are going to go to $3,000. And they think, oh, that's a, that's a big jump. What we really encourage for first-time buyers or anyone really is to know, well, my, what's my, of my $3,000 a month of my repayments, what is actually interest and what is actually capital? Right. Because the interest is kind of like rent. You know, interest is money you lose. It goes to the bank. But the capital is actually money that reduces your loan. And so it's actually like saving. And so when we look at those sort of numbers, yes, your repayments are maybe $3,000 a month, but maybe $2,000 that is interest, which is very similar to your rent, $1,800 a month. And maybe the extra thousand was actually paying your mortgage off. And so for a lot of first-time buyers, I think it's really valuable to do that number. There are other costs to owning versus renting. So you might have to pay strata. You might have to pay insurance. You might have to do maintenance. You might have to- that you don't have to pay as rent renting, but that's a definitely a good because a lot of people think, oh, my, I'm only paying eighty dollars a month rent. I've got to pay three thousand dollars in mortgage repayments. What's all those costs? I might just rent. It's better off. Well, no, you've got to compare interest and rent um, a bit separate. Absolutely, I never thought of it that way, but it makes sense because it is something that you're building. It's yours. Yeah, absolutely. And you will sell one day, right? So let's say this first situation, like you you might sell it in two years, right? You meet someone, you go, actually, we know what, we don't want an apartment, we want a house, or you want to move regionally, or we want to move back to Earth. Or, and the only way to do that is to sell. And so that extra $1,000 a month you've been paying with your mortgage for the last two or three years, you know, it might be $30,000. Well, that means your mortgage has reduced $30,000. So when you sell, you'll get that money back, assuming the property's gone up in value. Um, and that's probably the next part of our conversation. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Well, so yeah, about the fixer-upper, what's kind of the pros and the cons of that? Because I I mean, living in Sydney, around the area that I live, you see a lot of beautiful apartments in a good location, but maybe the kitchen's not quite right or the bathroom's a little tired. What are the kind of, what, what are your thoughts on getting something like that and fixing it up? Yeah. So I think for a lot of first-time buyers, jumping straight into the housing market, right, is really tough, right? The, the, especially in our capital city, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, et cetera. So a lot of first-time buyers look at villa units, they look at um, apartments, they look at little potentially even townhouses, et cetera. And you know, there's, there's usually two types. There's the, the new builds, right? Like the high-density apartments. Um, and there's these things like low-density or medium-density, and they're like maybe built in the 60s and 70s, Art Deco apartments, et cetera. So in Sydney, you know, I think a lot of first-time buyers should be looking at those, you know, little apartments. So you might be going in the inner west or you might be going somewhere on the, the North Shore, um, et cetera. Depends on your budget, right? And versus, you know, like a, a newer build, high-density apartment, right, where they're going to build more of them and there's potentially building issues and you can't add any value to them because they've been you know, built 10 years ago. They're not that super desirable to sort of families or downsizers. They've really just been a lot of renters in them, et cetera. So, yeah, I think for in Sydney, for example, I think a lot of first-time buyers, you know, a really good idea to look at those sort of older apartments. And absolutely, potentially, you might need to spend some money on it. It's always good to get something that's really solid. You know, you do your building and pest at, or in this situation, a strata report and make sure there's no issues in the building that are um, going to cost you a lot of money. But, yeah, then I think what a lot of first-time buyers can do is, is they – 
they move into it and then they slowly add value to it over time. It is, it's not a yeah. case of bang, you've got 100000 left over, let's do the bathroom, the kitchen, et cetera. Generally, you know, they rip out the old carpet, they paint it, they put some floorboards down, they change the, the lights, they, these small things that can, you know, really make the place much more homely. And, and finally, maybe they get the strata approved and they do the kitchen or they do a bathroom and, and they, yeah, make it a cute little place. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, not something that's such a fixer upper that it's not livable, but something yep. that, you know, you can live in and you know, eat like slowly, slowly do it up. That's something that I'm definitely looking at. Um, I like things that have a bit of character anyway. So if you, so you're in Melbourne, you, you might even look at like a little villa unit. Like that. I love them as a great little investment. You know, they're like, um, so they're in like really nice sort of family suburbs. They might be mm-hmm. in the east or they might be in the bayside or might be in the lower north or in the inner west around sort of Yarraville or something. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, there might be four or five little, you know, brick villas and they got a little little courtyard or a little garden and you're parking and, you know, they're in a quiet little street. Um, and so they're amazing, you know, because you're getting land, but also you're getting, you know, a bigger place. You're not just getting this like, tiny apartment on a busy road. And when you add a little bit of value to it, you know, a young family could look at it, right? Because it's like a good stepping stone for them. And so, from a growth point of view, I think they do really well. And, um, you know, in that situation in Melbourne, if, if you met a partner and you bought that, then, you know, you could potentially stay there and have children because there's a second bedroom and things like that. And yes, yeah, so that's something that a lot of first-hand buyers look at. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think when people are looking, how much of a future lens should you really be having? I think we, you kind of touched on it before. Okay, how far in the future should I be looking for something that I want in the next five years or should I be looking for something that I want in 10 years? Because as you said, like things can change so quickly. Look, I think it's hard. Like if you're in a couple, I def- definitely, we really encourage them to try to plan longer term because you've got double incomes, you've got double the savings you've, and not ha- try to buy something that suits you now that won't suit you in five years. Because, you know, let's say that you want to live in the city as a couple now, and then you want to have kids in five years time. Like, I think what ends up happening is they live the life today and then you go and try to upgrade and the asset you want to buy into has actually gone up more than what you just bought. And then you paid stamp duty and selling costs. And um, so you live the life, but you haven't actually helped yourself financially. And so we really encourage people to think through if they're having kids and could they get a property that they could grow into, you know, like a house that they could potentially renovate one day. And I mean, that was a, a client yesterday, you know, they were trying to get a little in Brisbane, they were going to get a, an apartment, a three-bed apartment, et cetera. And we were sort of encouraging them, you know, maybe they should go a little bit further away, maybe spend a little bit more money, but get a house. And actually that was in Melbourne, to be honest. And, you know, a house that they could renovate one day because the renovated houses would be too expensive. So it depends on where you are in the first home buyer journey. And I think what's, it's if you are in that sort of early stage of a relationship as well, we help lots of clients. I do think it really helps try to get that clarity, you know, that confidence there, you know, rather than I'm just going to go do this myself because I want to be independent. But then you're in a relationship as well. Like, you know, we had a client last year, um, it was a same-sex couple, um, you know, she got a bit of inheritance, one of them. And, you know, but they've been together for a while as a couple and she was going to do something by herself. And then we got them both on the same page and the other, and they they joined their incomes together and they went out and they they bought something together. And, um, you know, it's both theirs and they're, you know, super happy and pleased. And so don't be too afraid of getting your partner involved, but you also then, you know, don't want to just do it yourself as well if it's not going to be the right thing. Because in that situation, if she went and bought something just for herself, it wouldn't have been really what would have suited them both, you know, because her budget was more limited. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a good conversation. It really depends on your situation. 
Totally, totally. That makes sense. I'm really curious to know your thoughts on off-the-plan apartments. So I've heard great stories. I've heard terrible stories. So I have had one story, a friend of mine who she purchased an off-the-plan apartment and it was meant to be done a few months, like six months into the future. She's been waiting for three years. And then I have another person who works in real estate and was selling off the plan apartments. And her argument was that, okay, if you're purchasing an off the plan apartment in 2023, but the house, the apartment's not going to be ready until 2025, you're locking in a 2023 price, but for a property that's further in the future. So I think her in her eyes, it was going to go up in value, but you know, that's, you don't have a crystal ball. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. So yeah, what are your thoughts on that so whole scenario. <laughs> yeah. So the real people make money on off the plane is that second scenario, right? So they buy at a really good time. It's all a timing thing, right? And they buy really well and the market shifts because, and they couldn't potentially afford to buy in 2023. They could afford to get it, sign a contract because you don't pay for that. You just pay a deposit, right? They don't need the income. They don't need to get the bank lending, et cetera. All they need to do is pay a deposit and sign a contract, right? And so the, the people where you can potentially make some money in off the plan is when you buy really well, just at, at pre a market boom. And you also buy in a really good development that went up, you know, really strongly in that time frame. And you then the only way to make money on it though is to potentially settle on the property. So you still need to uh, then A, get the build done. You still need to then finally um, get the loan. So you have to have the income to get the loan. And then you need, then need to look to sell the property to make your money really. That's and true. Then you pay capital gains tax potentially if, unless you lived in it, then you might pay stamp duty or you maybe not. And if it's just selling costs. And, and so generally speaking, I think that's a really fraught with danger strategy. What happens if the property doesn't go up in value? You know, off the plan space is generally a lot of medium and high density apartments. You can get off the plan space in townhouses and things like that. Um, but ultimately, medium and high density apartments are one of the most underperforming assets. It's one of the riskiest assets to buy. If you talk to anyone who bought off the plan in Brisbane for the last 15, 20 years, um, you'll get hundreds and thousands thousands of horror stories, right? Where they bought an off the plan for 500,000. Two years later, it was built and the bank said it's only worth 450,000. Oh, that would be awful for them. Yeah. And they couldn't get lending because the bank only wants to lend 80% on lots off the plan. And they only had a 50,000 and they had to walk away from their deposit or they did settle and then they sold it for a $30,000 loss. Um, the Melbourne apartment market in the off-the-plan space has done pretty much nothing for 15 years. Um, a lot of people have lost money there. So in particular, some developments occasionally, you know, they are very scarce developments and um, they're, you know, done by a really good builder, et cetera. Um, and people have made money in off-the-plan, but ultimately there's lots of risks. There's builder risk, there's finance risk. There's lots of scare. There's a scarcity risk. There could be lots of them. There's lots of apartments. They build lots more than, you know, that your friend thought, oh, this is the only apartment block in 2023. Then all of a sudden, in the next three years, there's another 10 apartment blocks go up. You know, the market can shift. Um, interest rates can change. Lots can change with the space. So I think it's fraught for danger. We'd really encourage people not to go down that route and buy down the established market. There's 11 million properties. You, there's, you don't need to go and try to buy these off the plans. I think you're you're better off going with the proven properties that you know the building's going to stand the test of time because it's been there for 40 or 50 years. Totally. That makes complete sense. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's a great tip for me. Yeah. Yeah. 
I was also interested in learning or knowing, giving, getting, getting some tips, I suppose. So a little bit about my kind of personal situation is I don't really have any loans or um, debt, but I have an issue with spending. I probably spend way too much money than I normally should. I just love food and stuff. So what are your tips that you have for people who are on this journey that maybe do find it difficult to save, you know, I mean, some people are great at saving, you know, a huge chunk of the income, but what is, what's your tips for people who maybe find it a little more challenging? Look, I think the only way to really do it is to start with the end in mind, right? So get very clear on what you um, are trying to achieve, right? I really want to, because unless you're really motivated, you're not going to do it, right? So you go, well, I, I want to get my first place because I do want to, I'm earning great income, but I just want to have something to show for it. You know, like it's it's one thing when you're, you're climbing the corporate ladder or whatever it might be and you, you, your salary is going up. But if your spending is going up just equally, like you've got to say, well, what's, what, is it really worth it? I'm, I've got these things. I've got these experience, but I'm not, you know, keeping anything back. Um, and it, there, is a, there is a mix of those things that you need, right? Um, and so I would say, look, you know, get that understanding of your deposit. Figure out where you're at today, you know, figure out if there's any, any help from family potentially as well and figure out well, how much do you need to save over whatever time frame. Um, then also look at your, you know, your day-to-day income. I think trying to focus on, a lot of people focus on trying to cut their spending back, but I think also you should focus on trying to increase your income. Some people have got professions where they do a bit of extra study or they swap employers or they they can increase their income. Sometimes people can't, you know, whether they haven't got that luxury, right? There's certain professions where you're on more of a rigid time frame and salaries, et cetera. So yeah, focus on your income, focus on your personal development, your human capital, I guess that you could call it. But then also on your spending side, look, there's there's lots of ways you can attack this. I mean, the Barefoot Investors sold 2 million plus books for a reason. It's a big problem. That book's mainly giving you a system to manage your cash flow plus some other tips. I think that's a good starting point. But it's just really looking at what is your fixed costs? You know, can you try to reduce them a little bit? You know, like, do I really need to live in this beautiful place? Could I keep my rent down? Could I maybe get rid of some of my fixed costs that I don't really need to spend? And then it's just giving yourself a budget to live each each week, right? I think the best way to say it is, okay, well, my salary is say $5,000 a month. Well, $3,000 goes on my fixed costs. I've got $2,000 left over. I'm going to try to save a thousand. And then the other thousand dollars I've got to spend each month on experiences or on materials, right? And um, so that's $250 a week. I'm going to put $250 a week into a separate account and that's all I've got. And I think what you end up doing is you, in that situation, you start basing your spending on $250, not on your $5,000. And so when you're going to go and spend $100 on a dinner, you go, is this really valuable? Do I really value this? Or or could I not do that? You know, could I just go to the you know park with a friend and something and spend $30 and get the exact same value from it? And I think that's where you you start to Spend based on what you've got, not on what you were, you think you earn, and that's a that's a that's a good trick that I used. That's a great tip for me. I have to remember that every time there's a sample sale up the road yeah. from me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can't like resist a good deal, even though it's something that I don't need. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're you know sixty percent of our economy is, dri- economy is driven by consumerism, and so is all the advertisement. Uh, so, and the way that we world we live. So. Um, it's not your, just your problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Probably one of the last questions that I have is buying for a lifestyle, which is we've kind of already spoken about it, but where should you compromise? So I love where I live now. I love the lifestyle around it, but 
it is expensive. So where do you draw the line? Like where do you have to go? I need a compromise. I need to move somewhere else or I need to get something smaller. How do people navigate? So it's like the mentality of that. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So I, so I, I get it. So like, you know, sometimes the places where we all want to live right are the most expensive places to rent or buy, right? And so um, what a first home buyer sometimes have to do is make that shift and they go, well, now it doesn't mean you have to do it forever, right? So what a first home buyers might do is they might buy in a little apartment and it might be, say, in the inner west or something like that. But ultimately, they want to live in Bondi or they want to live in, I don't know, Manly or they want to live, you know, in Surrey or whatever it is. Talking about Sydney or in Melbourne, they might want to live in St Kilda or, you know, Albert Park or, you know, South Yarra or, you know, et cetera, or Fitzroy. But they, they can't afford to buy in those areas. So, you know, what you really want to do is that you, you do want to live in the property straight away if you can. One, because you might get the stamp duty exemptions. Two, there might be benefits with the government home loans. But three, if you do live in the property, it's, it does mean that it can grow for you tax-free because it's your principal place of residence. Now, the ATA rules around this are pretty vague. You know, there's not a certain time frame you have to live in it, but you definitely have to live in it to get that. But if you moved out of it after, let's call it six or 12 months, um, you know, getting tax advice on this, that property could grow for you tax-free for up to six years. It's something called the six-year rule. So for a lot of first-time buyers, you definitely maybe move to that inner west or those areas that you purchase as a first-time buyer. You might live there for a bit and then you might rent it out and have it as an investment property. And then you move back to Bondi and you flat share with some friends or et cetera. So you've, you've got an asset, you've used your savings, you've got something growing for you and you're renting it out, but then you move back to where you want to live. And so you just haven't not decided, I'm not going to do anything because I just want to keep living in Bondi. You've taken that you know, short-term hit from a lifestyle point of view, but you've also done something for your future self but then you don't have to stay there. You, there's no reason why you can't, you don't. You have to live in your property because you own it. And you, there's no reason why you can't just rent it out. That's true. That's really true. I suppose my final question for you is when, obviously you're a mortgage broker, you've been a financial advisor. When do you think is the right time for someone to talk to someone like you? Look, I don't think it's too early. I just think, I think really the, the what you want to do is just figure out, is there anything about your situation that are really a bank's not going to like? You know, sometimes people have made a few mistakes on their credit file. Um, they're not forever, but at least you know about them. Sometimes you can get them removed. Um, you know, sending letters, there's lots of companies that can help you with that. Right, so yeah, just, that. Um, your credit file is just might be the first thing you want to just make sure you're okay. You can even do that without seeing a broker. You can just do it online. But just understanding of your job, your income, what you can borrow, your savings, the current government schemes, you know, yeah, I don't think it's that ain't too early. And but yeah, you just want to then potentially say, okay, well, this is where I am today. How are things going to be in twelve months? You know, what's going to happen? What can I do to improve my situation? And so, yeah, I don't think there's ever too early. But yeah, no, I love that. Well, you've given me some really good tips in terms of what things that I need to consider, and hopefully, I'm, well, I'm sure that other people probably feeling in the same boat will get some yeah. some little nuggets of gold from you. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, thanks to everyone listening to the podcast. And if you've got any questions, definitely email them through um, and check out some of the links in the in the show notes if you did want to talk about your, your situation. Um, and thanks, Melissa, for coming on. It was, a, it was a good chat. Thank you so much. Awesome. And thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning into the Australian Property Podcast. If you love the show, why not subscribe or leave us a review on Apple or Spotify? And if you want to work with me, Amy, Pete or Chris, you'll find links in your podcast player to get in contact with us.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Australian Property Podcast. We're huge advocates of getting the right advice at the right time from the right people. That's why it's important to understand that this podcast episode contained general financial information only. It is not designed to be specific or personalized to your financial, tax or legal situation. With property, the check sizes are pretty big, so it's important you get advice from a licensed and trusted professional before acting on the information you hear in RAS podcasts. Thanks again for listening. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.